Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter. We have gone through the first chapter of 1 Peter in the last few weeks, and now we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's something that I find extremely, um, not only instructive, but inspiring, um, because it's, it's, I look at it and I say, I can see where I am, I can see where I've come from, but I can also see I'm not there yet, and there's some, some deeper depths to go and some greater hills to climb and say, you know, we're, we're moving forward in Christ. We're moving forward in Him. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but, um, and in fact, I think we mentioned a little bit about it even on Sunday, but the important thing is that you keep moving forward. The important thing, that's growth in Christ. Stability and steadfastness in Christ is not you standing still. It's you moving forward and you moving upward. And so we're going to do that. And, and as I read this, I'm inspired to move forward. I'm inspired to move upward. I'm inspired not to quit. I'm inspired not to slow down. In 1 Peter chapter 2, just last week, we talked about what it looks like to grow in Christ, that we grow with respect to salvation. How do we grow? First of all, we know that our growth is from God. But we grow because there's something in us that gave us new life, and we've been made to grow. And he says, here's how you grow. You long, like newborn babies long for milk, you long for the Word of God. You long for the sincere Word of God. By that Word, and by you applying it to your life, and by you allowing it to change your mind and renew your mind, because that is ultimately the key, isn't it? As you let it wash your mind, as it let, you let it change the way you think and then change the way you live, the Word of God will stimulate growth in you that you couldn't make happen on your own. We know how to simulate growth, don't we? We know how to act like we're growing, but that game only works for a little bit. It only fools a couple of people. In reality, the only way to genuinely grow is for you to continue to not only feed on the Word of God, but for you to apply it in such a way that you're using what you've learned, right? Because, I mean, just like we've talked about before, if you ate a full meal and then spent the rest of the day on the couch, you likely wouldn't be hungry as much as you would if you went out and ran and jogged a mile, right? Because when you're jogging, you're using, what, you're using the energy that you just ate. You're using and burning up what you just ate. It's become fuel for you. But if you just sit on the couch and, and, and do nothing and, and turn the thermostat up, then what's going to happen is you're not going to burn anything off. You're going to feel bloated. You're going to feel tired. You're going to feel full. And so a lot of times we say, I don't have the hunger for the word that I used to have. And there's different reasons for that. But I'd say one of the top reasons in the North American church is that we do a lot of eating and not a lot of exercising. We do a lot of eating of the word, but we don't do a lot of applying the word of God in our life. So if the word of God is a seed, it's meant to grow and it's meant to bear fruit. So he says you'll grow with respect to salvation by longing for the word of God, just like a newborn baby longs for milk. But now that we talked last week about growing yourself, personally you growing, let's talk about growing up together. Let's talk about growing together as a body. Because there are two analogies that, that God uses all throughout the New Testament over and over again when he's talking about the church. And when he's talking about you personally and you in, in the context of the church. And the first analogy is a body. You always, you, you've heard it many times how we are part of the body of Christ. We are body parts in a greater body. 
And just like one body part can't do much of anything by itself, it needs other parts of the body. It's the same way with us. And of course, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that body part cannot, cannot work together with other body parts. It has no function in itself if it's not properly connected to the head. Last, just on Sunday, we talked about uh, in Colossians 2 how it says we have to be not only rooted and grounded, but we have to be joined to the head. We have to be connected to the head, which is Christ. Then, so he talks about the body, but what else does he use? He also uses the idea of a building. All throughout the New Testament, you see words like edify. Now, edify is not a word we hear, you know, on MTV, or it's not a word that we hear at the, well, who watches MTV anymore anyways? But it's not a word you're going to hear in and around Lloyd Minster very often. But edify simply means to build, to build. And so that's, that's why when the scripture tells us that we should speak the words that will edify one another, it's so important because we have a job. God is building us. God is building his church, he's building us, but he's also given us a role to help build and to build one another up. And we also, with those same tongues that we build, the same tongues we use to build, we can use to tear down. We can use to destroy. That's the work of the thief. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I said this a couple of weeks ago, but I'll say it again. Destroy is a word that literally means to unbuild, to take something built and turn it into ruins. If God's job, if God's plan is to build us and build us together, what's Satan's plan? To take us apart. Now, without going too far into what we're about to read, let me just point something out to you. You can come upon a ruined building and all of the pieces are still there. Right? If you see a ruined building, it doesn't mean that it's just turned all into dust. I mean, let's talk about a, a stone building for, for a minute. And you could, all those stones may still be there. It, they may not have lost even one stone, but they're no longer connected to one another. And so now what was a building is ruins. In the same way for Satan to destroy us, he doesn't have to necessarily destroy everything in your life. He doesn't have to make you um, non-existent. He just has to disconnect you from everything else. And he's destroyed what God was building you into. And so I encourage you tonight, as we read through the word of God, let God show you how you play a part in the larger body of Christ and how it's so important that we see ourselves as part of a bigger picture. It's, it's a big deal for you to have a relationship with God personally. It's a, it's, a, it's a biblical concept. It's a godly thing that you have a time at home. You have a place at home where you can go and be with the Lord and you can seek God. I mean, Jesus talked about a prayer closet. That's important. And we're not replacing that tonight. But that alone is not what you're called to by itself. God has not just called you to have a me and Jesus relationship. As great, as much as you need a me and Jesus relationship, that's not the only thing. Because really, if you just say me and Jesus and no one else, you're forgetting a big part of Jesus, which is his body. And if I were to have a relationship with Tony, I wouldn't say, I talked to his head, but I wish it wasn't connected to that body. <laughs> just wish I could just, eh. I just wish it was just a head in a jar. I could, I could relate to that. <laughs> we want to get to know Jesus. You get to know Jesus as revealed in his word. You get to know Jesus through prayer. You get to know Jesus in many, by the Holy Spirit. But you also get to know Jesus through his body. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2. 
And we started in verse 4. We, 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 we stopped with the thought that you're going to grow, you're going to long for the word if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now we continue on to this thought in verse 4. Coming to him as, living, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Now that word rejected right there is a word that's used. It's not talking about you reject somebody because they made you mad. It's not talking about you rejecting somebody because you just hate them. It's talking about rejecting something as if uh, the word implies that some, you, you toss something to the side because it didn't have any value, okay? So, when a, for instance, you builders, uh, if you're going down to, to get material to build a house or to build something else, you, you go through the materials. You don't just grab any material, do you? Even, even if you went to the lumber yard, you know not everything at the lumber yard is, is good, especially nowadays. You kind of have to... You have to pick your materials, don't you? And so in that sense, when you're picking your materials, there's some stuff that you reject because it's not worth much. Or if you're, if you're looking for treasures, just like those kids that go down to the beach and they're looking for, for seashells that are just perfect. I used, to, I used to always look for something that had great value. I always had it in my mind that every family vacation was an opportunity for, for me to become a child millionaire, that I would just find something that was worth more than anybody thought. I would find a rock that was actually very valuable. I would find a, an artifact that nobody else found. I would find a dinosaur tooth. I just always thought I was going to find something. I think the most valuable thing I ever found, I didn't find anything about valuable. I was just racking my brain, but I didn't find anything. <laughs> I found some cool looking stuff. I found, a, you know, like a rock that looked like a gun, but nobody would pay me anything for that. So there's always this process you go through as a kid and you're finding things and, and, and you're rummaging. In order to find something good, you have to throw a lot of things to the side, right? You got to go, ah, no. No, no. And so this word rejected, when you look in the original language, it's implying that process that somebody is rummaging through something and they toss something to the side because it has no value. The funny thing is, they're talking about Jesus here. Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected. Rejected by men. Now he draws this phrase and this verse from the Old Testament in Psalms 118 where it says the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief, in my translation it says chief cornerstone. But it can also be translated as chief capstone. The difference between a cornerstone and a capstone is your cornerstone is your foundation, whereas your capstone is the, is the finishing touch, the final piece, the, 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 the masterpiece that puts it all together. And both of these things are biblical. He is our cornerstone and he is the capstone. He's the beginning and he's the end. But the world didn't see it that way. When they looked at Jesus, many of them rejected him, did not see the value. And they didn't see the value in the things he said. If you remember what Jesus said, he said, don't throw pearls before swine. Because they'll become angry at you. And they'll tear you to pieces. Why? Because a pig's not looking for a pearl. A pig sees no value in the pearl. That pearl could be worth more than all the food that pig will ever eat in his whole lifetime. But a pig doesn't know it. And the pig doesn't just reject the pearl. He gets mad at you for trying to give him a pearl. You'll find this out in your life that sometimes 
God has God has shown you revelation in His Word. Sometimes you, you you're into some of you know you've you've grown in the Lord and and you'll try to spread the gospel to somebody that and you're saying this is the greatest news in the world that Jesus died for us and took our shame and took our sin and took our grief grief and 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 He bore it on the cross for us that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And yet you you try to tell this to somebody and to you it's the greatest thing in the world and they look at you like. Can we talk about something else, please? I don't talk religion and politics. And some people get right mad at you for bringing it up. Well, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's a pearl, and the swine reject it. Now, does that mean you stop preaching the gospel? Absolutely not. What he was talking about to his disciples was don't, don't spend all your time trying to teach people that don't want to be taught because they won't, they, won't they won't endure it. They won't receive it for what it is. But Jesus was rejected. The precious cornerstone that God, that God sent to us as a representation of himself, that the whole church is going to be built on, was rejected. Then he says, it might have been rejected by men, but it is choice and it is precious in the sight of God. Man's idea of what's valuable does not match up with what God sees as valuable. He says this, it's choice, it's precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, what is a spiritual house? It's a house you can't see. It's a house that doesn't have the, the structure that you might be able to pick out as, as much as you would a natural building, but it is, it is something that's bigger than all of us. And he says, you're being built up. Now, I love that because what it tells me is we're not done yet. I mean, sometimes we know we're the house of the Lord, Right? You know, that's what the Bible tells us, that, that no longer is God's house in a city in the Middle East. No longer is God's house in, in the biggest church in town. God's house. I know some of you have told your kids, don't run, this is God's house. And I, I appreciate the sentiment. But this, keep telling your kids not to run in the sanctuary. I agree with you. But this is just a building. And if the building were to burn down, God would have lost none of his church. This isn't the church. We are the church. We are a spiritual house. And then he says we're being built up. So I know we say we're the house of God, and we are, but we're not finished yet. We're being built up. He says we're being built up as a spiritual house for a reason, for a, for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's stop here for a minute and just... Pick that apart. Right now, he's called you a living stone. That's cool. You're part of what God's building. But he's also called you the spiritual priesthood. In a few verses, he's going to say, you're the holy priesthood. That could be confusing because which am I? Am I the stones that build the house or am I the priest inside the house? Well, the truth is you're both. In fact, easily make the case that you're not only the stone that makes the house, you're the priest that offers the sacrifice, and you're also the sacrifice. You get to be three things in this story. I hope you can handle that. When we talk about it, it's, it's, it's exciting because what he's saying is, is that God has made a context. God has made, he has shown the way that he wants us to offer sacrifices. He showed the way he wants to be worshipped. He's shown the way he wants to be served. And it's in the context of the larger community of God. 
As much as we say, I want to offer sacrifices to God, and as much as God finds that honorable, we also have to remember that God chose to make, to, to allow us to offer sacrifices as holy priests, but also to do it within the larger context of the church. So let me clarify that. That does not mean that everything you're offering to God has to be done in this building. This, like we've said before, is in the church. It doesn't say that everything you're going to do for God has to be done on a Sunday or a Wednesday night. The church does not begin on Sunday. It does not begin on Wednesday night. The church is all the time. But you'll find that there's many things that God's called you to that as much as you wish you could do it by yourself, he has purposely made it so that you're going to need other people. That our sacrifices are amplified by joining together. Our sacrifices are made perfect, not only through Jesus Christ, but through the context of his body. So what's the priest who's just out by himself in the wilderness offering a sacrifice going to do? Because he's not mentioned in this verse. What's mentioned in this verse is a group of people offering sacrifices together within a house. And what's the house? We're the house. God created this community for a reason. We need one another. We need to do it with, with one another. We need to realize that often, as much as we say, I want to offer the best sacrifice to you, Jesus, that he's not looking for you to just, this isn't a competition where we each put our sacrifice on the table and say, which one's better? A lot of times our sacrifices are a joint thing. We bring them to God. And he says that our sacrifices are made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, this harkens back to an Old Testament principle. In the book of Exodus, you find that God gave a law to the Israelites. It was, in fact, given to Aaron the high priest. Because when they would bring sacrifices, they would bring it to their priest, right? And ultimately, for instance, on the Day of Atonement as one example, those sacrifices would be given through the high priest to God. But God told them that because they were sinful and they had, they had sinned before him, not only did the priests need to be purified, but their sacrifices need to be purified. Because let's just face it, as great as our sacrifices to God are, they're always a little flawed, aren't they? Nobody, nobody seems to think that that's true. But, but I'll tell you, when I sing a, a worship song or a praise song to God, I consider that a sacrifice to the Lord. What does the Bible say about that? It says, let's offer him the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to God. So when we're praising God, that's a sacrifice. But anybody in the room, can you just raise your hand if you are a perfect singer and you've never hit a wrong note? How about if you've never, hit, you've never sang a dumb song? Anybody here? You just always pick the holiest of holiest songs that never have any theological error. They never have any idle word thrown in there. They never have any whoa, whoa, whoa's or ooh, ooh, ooh's to fill the gaps. You've, you've just always sang the perfect song. Anybody here? No, we, we, our sacrifice might be sweet and special, but it's flawed. And it's flawed because it's connected to us. We are imperfect. By nature, we're not everything we're going to be. And the only day we're going to become everything we're going to be is that day when we see Jesus and we see him as he is and we are changed into his likeness as from glory to glory. On that day, we can call ourselves perfect. But until then, we see through a glass dimly. 
Until then, we're changing from glory to glory. Until then, we're growing. We're being sanctified, even though our spirit has been made sanctified. So here, when he talks about a sacrifice being acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, like I said, it goes back to this Old Testament thought. That God told them, even your best sacrifices will be flawed. Even your best sacrifices will have sin on them. So I want Aaron, the high priest, to wear a special turban. Some translations call it a miter. And it was a long linen band that he'd wrap around his head until it became a turban. If you've ever seen Sikhs, the turbans they wear, it looks like that. And even though the other priests would wear turbans, this one was different than all the other ones. The high priest had a special turban. And on that miter, they would have a gold plate that was embossed with the words, holy to the Lord. And God told them that through this, I know it sounds weird, but through this, God would take their imperfect, sin-tainted sacrifices, and through the high priest and this miter, those sacrifices would be made holy. And so when they gave their sacrifices to God, God didn't take it as a sinful, broken, flawed sacrifice. He took it as a perfect sacrifice. Now, that didn't mean you could just bring any old thing. Because in Malachi, they'd gotten to the point where they said, well, what does it matter? They're just going to kill the animal anyways. Why don't we send our blind animals, right? We, we don't want blind animals hanging around the house. They're annoying. They're, they're harder to feed. They keep running into barns. Let's just give them to the Lord. He's going to kill them anyway. I mean, it's just going gonna, gonna to be meat in a minute. Meat in a minute. Mark that down. That's a good product idea. <laughs> or let's give our lame ones to God. God, doesn't, it, God knows it doesn't need to run around for very long. And what God saw in that was that they weren't giving their best. And he says this. He says, You show your dishonor for my name by doing this. He said, would you give those to your governor? Would he receive you kindly if you did? Am I not a great king, he says? What it showed was their heart was, let's give God our second, our third, or fourth best. In that case, he did not receive those sacrifices. But when the Israelites gave the best of what they had, even though it was still flawed, even though it was still imperfect, even though it was still broken, God received it through the high priest as a perfect sacrifice. Now, that was looking forward to what Jesus was going to do on on the cross for us. By bearing our shortcomings, what does sin literally mean? It means to miss the mark. We have come short of the mark. And by bearing what caused us to come short of the mark and short of the glory of God, he made Something that was imperfect into something perfect. He's now our high priest. So here's what it says. We offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Now, acceptable in our language just doesn't sound exciting. If Spiro and Tina were to bring you a meal and put it in front of you, I said, I want you to eat this up. I prepared it special for you. We've been slaving over the stove for, for hours today. Would you, would you tell us what you think? And I looked back at them and I said, it's acceptable. Well, nobody would be too excited about that statement, would they? That's acceptable. It's it's okay. It'll pass. I won't send it back. But acceptable in this context is not talking about something that's just good enough. Because think, God is holy. And any sacrifice given to God must be holy. Holy, His holiness is perfect. 
So acceptable to God is perfect. And I don't know about you, but I have never offered a perfect sacrifice to God. Never once have I given something to God that I could say couldn't be any better. I've never put something in the offering and said nobody could ever give more. I've never given my time and said I couldn't have given any more than that. It's flawed because I'm flawed. But when it goes through Jesus Christ, my high priest, something happens to my sacrifice. It becomes perfect. And God doesn't receive it as good enough. He receives it as perfect and pleasing to him. You have to, you have, to have that faith. Because some, some of you honestly have been comparing your sacrifice to everybody else's sacrifice. And you need to just stop doing that. Their sacrifice isn't perfect, neither is yours. The best thing you can do is come in faith and say, my sacrifice will be pleasing to God because I'm giving it through Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, it's acceptable to God. The Bible says that by faith, Abel obtained an assurance that his sacrifice was pleasing to God. By faith. Whereas Cain gave a sacrifice that God was not pleased with. What were the secrets to Abel's sacrifice? Number one, obedience. God had told them to offer, him, offer them an animal sacrifice, and it mattered. Because the animal sacrifice was speaking and looking forward to what Jesus would do for us. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, right? They didn't know that. They didn't know all the facts. Isn't that true that sometimes God tells you to do something and you don't know why? And you haven't figured out the theology behind it. You haven't figured out all the answers behind it. But you know what you got to do? Obey and obey in faith. Your first step is just to say, yes, Lord, if that's what you want, that's what you have. I will give that to you. And your second thing to say is, I know it's not perfect, but it's my best. And by faith, I trust that what I brought to you that was imperfect, you receive as perfect through Jesus Christ. You see, when we're comparing our sacrifices to one another, it is not wise. What we're doing is we're setting a standard that somehow I need to reach their standard, but that standard is not good enough either. The standard that's good enough is the perfect standard set by Jesus, and none of us can do that without him. So the best thing you can do is to give your best and trust God that through Jesus it'll be perfect. Now, we're living stones, we're priests offering sacrifices, and we're also the sacrifice. What does the Bible say our sacrifices could be? Our sacrifices are our praise, our sacrifices is our giving, but our sacrifice, ultimately the greatest sacrifice, is what the scripture says, that you are a living sacrifice. Your life is a sacrifice. And how many of you know we are imperfect sacrifices, but we're what he wants? We are, we are the broken toys that God asked for for Christmas. Figure it out. I don't know why. Thank God we don't stay broken. Thank God he heals what's broken. He begins to change us into his image. Thank God that our spirit, the Bible said, was recreated in the likeness of him, in the holiness and the truth. Guys, if you were to look at your spirit under a microscope, you would find no flaw because it's been created in Christ Jesus. Thank God for that. Now, my brain still needs work. My body, God knows, needs a lot of work. But thank God he's not abandoned us, and he'll take what you give, and he'll make it acceptable. 
In verse 6, for this is contained in Scripture. Once again, this is from Psalm 118. Behold, I lay in Zion. I'm sorry, no. Uh, Psalm 118 is the verse that's quoted in verse 7. But this one is also from the Old Testament. He says, this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for those who believe. But those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected. This has become the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they're disobedient to the word. And for this doom, they were also appointed. Thank God he goes on with the next verse and says, but you. And he says something totally different about you. And we'll talk about that next week. But just pause for a sec. And let's just talk about what he said about uh, Jesus. Jesus being the, the cornerstone. Jesus being the center. Jesus being the point. That everybody else rejected. But to us, he's the precious cornerstone. We see him as, as the foundation, the cornerstone. Everything is connected to him. I quoted this on Sunday, but in 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about people that build all their lives. They build what they consider to be a masterpiece building, what they consider to be their greatest work. But at the end of the day, it will not pass the test of fire because it was not built on the proper foundation, which is Christ. Everything we do has got to be founded in Christ. Our reason for doing what we do has to be Jesus. Our reason for being with one another, Jesus. We find our unity in him. Did you know there's false unity? See, we can, we can just say, hey, let's just all get along. And we can just say, let's do the same thing. But isn't that what they did when they tried to build the Tower of Babel? Just getting along is not what God's asking for. Only the, the only true unity is found when we unite together in uniting with him. If we're not founded on him, if our, if our center point, if our cornerstone, if our, the center of everything that binds us together is not Christ, what we're building will fall apart. You could build a church where everybody's on the same page, everybody's got the same mission, but if that mission didn't come from God, and if that mission is not founded on Christ and his kingdom, and you're building your own kingdom, that mission will fail. That building will fall. That building will burn up. And unfortunately, throughout history, it's happened a lot. I want a building that remains. I want to be part of a building that remains. So we make Jesus the center of it. We make Jesus the center of our church because he's the center of his church. You know what? That's going to offend some people, but that's okay. You know, Jesus is supposed to be offensive to some people. Would you rather go to your death happy and unbothered? Or would you rather somebody trip you on your way to the cliff and say, don't go any further? It's good to trip over Jesus. That's why... We make Jesus a center. That's why we don't brush Jesus to the side. There's going to be some people that are bothered by Jesus, but let them be bothered by Jesus. That's good. You should be bothered by Jesus. You should, he should have an effect on you. So if he doesn't have an effect on you, you won't change. I mean, you know what? Jesus, as we're talking about Jesus, he's the best news anybody's ever had. He's wonderful. He's altogether lovely. He's not a bad guy. So when we talk about Jesus... We're like, who, would, who in the world would be offended by this guy? Who in the world would hate this guy? I mean, he's the, he is everything. But people are. And I've said this before. I'll say it again. 
Part of my goal is that I don't trip people before they trip over Jesus. Some people are so offensive, people get offended at them before they even get a chance to get offended at Jesus. And you pat yourself on your back because you think you're suffering for Jesus when really you're the jerk that scared them away. And you think, oh, Jesus said I would be persecuted, and I'm being persecuted. No, you're being persecuted because you're being rude to everybody. You're being persecuted because you're arrogant. We will be persecuted, but let's be persecuted for the right reasons. Let's not be persecuted because we're just openly hostile. We got good news to share, don't we? Not everybody's going to see it as good news, but it is good news. It's the gospel. It's the word of reconciliation. So he says, for some people, we trip over Jesus, and you turn around and say, that's what I've been missing all my life. Thank God I tripped over that. I can't believe I almost missed it. This is the center of everything. And some people will trip over Jesus, and they'll turn around, and they'll swear because they stub their toe, and they'll curse him, and they'll say, I wish you weren't in my way. Some people go the rest of their life feeling that. Some, like Saul, will trip over Jesus, will curse him, will will swear at him, will walk the other way, and Jesus will be merciful enough to land on their heads and say, I'm not letting you go anywhere until you just hear who I am. So in a church, it's made up of living stones. We can't forget that all of their stones find their place, find their meaning, find their context, find their value because of the cornerstone. You can't build a building separate from the foundation. What happens if you try? Like Jesus said, that building building will fall down. If Jesus is the foundation, I know that here's the tricky part. If we're being built together and part of me being built is being connected to you, and part of you being built is being connected with that person. And sometimes they rub against you weird because they don't fit just perfectly. But trust me, if God puts you there, you're supposed to fit. And sometimes you need to be ground down a little bit so you can fit. Do you ever notice that people sometimes grind you weird? Some people rub up against you the wrong way. Well, maybe what's happening is God put you next to that person for a reason so that your rough edges would be smoothed out. Because you can't smooth a rough edge with a smooth edge. Takes two rough edges. We just don't get along. Learn to get along. <laughs> I read Philippians. Sidetrack. I read Philippians, and he talks about. <laughs> he talks to his sidekick, and he says, "Hey, these two women—they've been fighting for a long time. Help them to get along." And I always feel sorry for that guy. What in the world? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine being that guy getting that letter? Your beloved apostle Paul says, hey, I got a mission for you. What is it, bro? I'm ready. Do you want me to preach to the Scythians? I'll do it. I want you to make those two women get to, those two prominent women in the church. Make them get along. Oh, Lord. Give me another mission, please. Something else. Anything else. Name it. I'll do it. I will die for you. Sometimes you just got to say, if God put me here, I'm supposed to be here. I'm not moving until he tells me to move. You want to move because that person's rubbing you wrong, but maybe that's supposed to rub you wrong. Maybe it's supposed to rub you wrong. Maybe God's putting you together. But now, we, we are being built together. We're being built in relation to one another. But how do you know if you're out of position? 
How do you know if you're still in the right place? How do you know if you're still believing the right thing? If you're still, how do you know if this is a godly unity or it's just a unity you manufactured? Look back to the cornerstone. This is how we orientate our position. This is how we find out if we're still lined up right. Where's the cornerstone? It's right there. Am I lined up? Am I lined up with Jesus? That relationship will make all the other relationships make sense. If your relationship with Jesus suffers, your relationship with people will suffer. If your doctrine, if your theology about Jesus, if your belief about Jesus is wrong, it'll mess up all your other belief systems. It'll mess up every, you won't be able to read the Bible and read it right if you don't have a proper revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I'll say that, telling you this, your revelation will get bigger, it'll change, you'll learn more, you'll look back and say, I can't believe I thought that. But God's patient. If I can rightly look at the cornerstone, I can find out, am I in line? If I'm in line with him, then I'll be okay rubbing against somebody a little weird. I'll be okay where he put me as long as I'm in line with the cornerstone. The thief comes to steal. The thief comes to kill and the thief comes to unbuild. But Jesus' answer to that is this. I came that you might have life. There is a life that has been injected into us. So he calls us living stones. I'll tell you the life that Jesus has given you. Remember what this started with in chapter 1. It started with him reminding you that you were born again of a living seed that is incorruptible. You were born again with something that can't be tarnished. You're born again with something that does not age. You're born again of something that is growing inside of you. And the word of God that was implanted in you and the life of God that's in you made you a living stone, made you something more than you were. And that life is the answer to what the enemy is trying to destroy. The enemy seeks to kill. The enemy seeks to steal. The enemy seeks to destroy. But, Jesus said, and when he said but, what he was about to tell you was about to contradict everything the thief was trying to do. But I've come that you might have life and you might have it to the full. You might have it more abundantly. I'm telling you this evening that that's the answer to it all. The life of God within you will cause you to grow. The life of God within you will cause you to fit with people you don't fit with. You're living. That means changing. Thank God for change, right? (sighs) How many of you, just, just a quick question. Raise your hand if this applies to you. At one point... There were people that God placed you with that are in your life now that you couldn't stand, and now you really like them and you really love them. Anybody in your, yeah, that's amazing. I know you because you had to, you know. When she was a young lady, before any of you ever knew her, she, she put notes all over her walls saying, I love this person, I love this person, I love this person. Because there was one person she didn't jive with, and thank God, God fixed it. But that's the truth. We all, we all can say that. We're living stones. You're not going to be what you were. You're changing. You're growing. You're fitting better than you fit yesterday. And that's a good thing. God did it for a reason. You have sacrifices to offer. But don't forget, they're meant to be offered in the larger context of the body of Christ. So whenever you're sacri- giving, when you're giving what you're giving to the Lord... First and foremost, say, am I doing what he told me to do? Is there obedience involved? Second, is there faith involved? And thirdly, 
how does this relate to all these people around me? Because it will relate to them because it's meant to be done in the house of God. That doesn't mean it has to be a church activity. That doesn't mean it has to be a sanctioned activity. It doesn't mean it has to happen at a certain time, a certain place. But it does mean that God is going to purposely call you to things that can't be done without him and can't be done without one another. And there'll be moments in your life where you're meant to do something by yourself. You have to stand alone. No one stands with you. I get that. But thank God for the body of Christ. Thank God for these other stones around you, these other blockheads around you. They get to be built into a house. Thank God above all for the cornerstone. The cornerstone, the capstone, the beginning, the end, the foundation, and the crowning achievement that is Christ. Thank God for him. Amen. We're not going to reject him. We're going to embrace him for what he really is. And we'll embrace one another as a part of our building. Thank God. Because without them, you'd be out of place. Without them, you'd fall down too. So thank God for the people around you. Stand up together.